Hello and welcome to Inside Infrastructure, an inside look at the decisions and decision makers behind Australia's city shaping infrastructure. I'm Ilya Zak from series sponsor PwC Australia, and I'm joined as always by my co-host Adrian Dwyer, CEO of Infrastructure Partnerships Australia. For today's episode, we have Michael Brennan, the chair of one of Australia's most treasured and important institutions, the Productivity Commission. So Michael Brennan, welcome to Inside Infrastructure. Um, I wonder, um, we'll get into your current role as chair of the Productivity Commission um, shortly, but I wondered if you could um, maybe just talk us through your career background and, and who you are. Sure, thanks Adrian, and it's a great uh, pleasure to be here, uh, to be participating to the debate, participating in the debate. Uh, I, prior to being in the current role as chair of the Productivity Commission, I was working in the Commonwealth Treasury. So there I was the Deputy Secretary of the Fiscal Group, uh, which had, uh, as a the name suggests uh, responsibility for the Commonwealth budget, but a few other things besides. It was also Commonwealth state relations, a bit of social policy. It also had uh, retirement income superannuation policy within it as well. And prior to being in the Commonwealth Treasury, I'd been in the Victorian Treasury. Uh, and I'd also had a bit of a background working in uh, some ministerial offices. So I worked in the Victorian government many years ago in the 1990s as an advisor to Alan Stockdale uh, during the period of the Kennett government. And I've worked a bit in the Howard government as an advisor to Nick Minchin and, and in between worked at PwC as well in the economics and policy practice. So to the extent you can take some uh, unifying narrative thread and put it through all those beads, I guess I would uh, say that I've been in and around the public policy debate uh, for uh, my career, which is now getting on for not quite 30 years, but, but nearly. Uh, but from a range of different vantage points, um, state and commonwealth, private sector, public sector, and both within the bureaucracy, a bit within ministerial offices, and now in an arm's length independent uh, think tank. So uh, to some extent had seen a range of perspectives and a range of uh, vantage points on a number of issues which have come and gone and <laughs> evolved over that period. Those two uh, ministerial offices that you mentioned, those were pretty well known as the uh, some of the most um, active reformers of the of of the last couple of decades would have been would have been some pretty exciting initiatives that you worked on during that time anything in particular that stands out well they were, they were interesting times in different ways I mean the the period in Victoria in the 1990s was clearly a period of quite dramatic reform on a range of fronts economic and and fiscal and my responsibility was more on the budget side than than the broader economic stuff, but I did get a bit of a, a window or a lens on things like energy privatisation and other um, outsourcing deals like transport and and the like. Uh, in in the, the period in which I was working in the finance portfolio in Canberra was an interesting period too because, uh, again, a heavy fiscal focus. I was Absolutely. on the deliberations of the Expenditure Review Committee over that period. Uh, in one sense, people can look back uh, often a bit nostalgically on that period, a period where a lot of fiscal aggregates looked in pretty good shape. The budget was in surplus, debt was low, ultimately debt got eliminated. The flip side of that is it wasn't always a particularly rewarding time to be on the finance or treasury side of the table because uh, it was almost the case that money was so plentiful that uh, we, we lost a lot of arguments around that, around that table. It was difficult at times to maintain discipline in that, in that circumstance. Uh, I greatly value the time that I spent there. It, it was a fascinating period. Uh, but all these things, there are um, pros and cons. 
That's a very unique perspective on that period. Well, it's it's uh, because abs- a lot of, a lot of reform, but at the same time, obviously, just a a mountain of revenue that was coming in that would have, that makes the job ironically makes the job more difficult for for people that are trying to implement some kind of um, rigorous approach to expenditure as well. One of the things that interests me about that period is um, looking back, and you, and you mentioned the nostalgia for that time and it extends, you know, um, Hawke Keating and through the Howard years. Um, the nostalgia implies that this was this um, really coordinated process of reform. But often I've, I've spoken to people who are involved with the national competition policy work who sort of said like, it, it looks a lot more ordered and um, coherent in retrospect than it perhaps was at the time. I'd, I'd kind of be interested in your view and being in those offices and, and um, observing what was happening and being involved to some extent with what was happening. It, did it seem like a, a sort of an, a, a, um, a, was it a structured process? Were the, were the ends defined and then it was um, delivered or, or were things more fluid and pragmatic and incremental in the, the way they really came together? Yeah, my sense is things are always a little more fluid and pragmatic than they often appear outwardly. The the flip side is, given that that's a reality of policy making, I think some there are probably some periods of policy making and some uh, leaders within the process who've done a better job at having a coherent, unifying sense of what it was that they were out to achieve. And I think that is a very important ingredient in good public policy, such that people might be picking their moments and they might be experiencing some setbacks along the way. There'll be plenty of bumps and bruises, but at least in their own mind, they've got a reasonably clear-headed sense of where they're trying to take things. Uh, and I think in both the the period, both the periods you mentioned, the period of the 1980s and early 1990s, uh, though I was very young and not immediately connected with it, it, I think there was at least a bit of a sense of a, a coherent, unifying um, sense of, of where the then government wanted to take the country. And I think that was true too of the the Howard Costello years as well. Um, but I'm I'm kind of professionally averse to, to, to too much nostalgia as well, partly because I think it's just such a natural human tendency to look back on the past uh, with a, a kind of... Rose-coloured rose, glasses. Yeah, correct, rose-tinted rose uh, view. Um, I was reflecting only last night with someone about the current pandemic and uh, the various strictures it's forced upon us. And we were agreeing that, you know, one day people are going to look back very nostalgically on this period, um, much as they look back very nostalgically on the Second World War. And you think, well, really? I mean, you know, this was a period of of great challenge in, in many ways and great restriction. Um, so I think there is a natural tendency towards nostalgia. And as, prof- as, as policymakers, we have to be a little bit professionally dubious about that, I think, and, and really question it, given that we know that there's a natural tendency towards it. So I, I, part of what I, I worry about a bit is that sometimes that nostalgia translates into a kind of negativity or pessimism about the present and about the mm. current state of policymaking. And I, I tend to be much more of an optimist. I think that the policy capability um, at both the state and Commonwealth level is strong. I think, um, you know, in the course of this challenge, we've seen um, the Federation rise to the challenge in many ways. So, so I think there is always, uh, it, it always pays to take a glass half full view. And I think there's good grounds for it as well. And we're going to come to the, um, maybe some of the opportunities through the current 
crisis and as we emerge from the recovery um, soon. There are a couple of areas I want to tackle first. So I wonder, um, so going to your, your current role then, Michael, um, you were offered the role as Productivity Commissioner. You'd been in the Federal Treasury. What, what was it that um, made you take a position that is, as you said, an independent think tank, arm's length from government? What was it that attracted you to that route rather than you know, a more senior role in the public service? Well, the first thing is I've never been um, uh, particularly ambitious about where I wanted to head in the public service. So the job that I had in Victoria, which was the Deputy Secretary of the Economic Group within the Victorian Department of Treasury and Finance, uh, I regarded as the greatest job in the Victorian public sector, and I, I still do. I think it's, it's the greatest job you can have in the VPS, uh, and I never had an ambition to do anything else. And, uh, and But when I had the opportunity to go and work in Canberra under John Fraser in the Commonwealth Treasury, uh, I thought that that too was a great opportunity, so I went I went and did it. But I, I never had a particularly uh, clear sense of what a path beyond that job was. Now, I did the job uh, for a few years. I'd done three budgets. Uh, I knew at some point John Fraser would be moving on, uh, and and I was kind of interested in principle in in doing other things. What attracted me to the Productivity Commission when it became uh, a possible option was twofold. I think uh, the strong microeconomic focus of of the PC, which is sort of has suited my both my background and my kind of intellectual leanings. And in, in one sense, the uh, notwithstanding that I'd worked in a few high octane environments like ministerial offices and the like, I kind of felt as though the the, the nature and style of work at the Productivity Commission suited me dispositionally um, more so than being in, in the Treasury, even though you're a bit closer to the action. So uh, in addition to which I've had great regard for the PC and its predecessor organisations. So it seems to be a great thing to be part of. Can you describe that a little, little bit, just where where you, and I'm guessing you, you'd have a, a better sense for this than just about anybody else, given your role, obviously, but where do you, the PC is a very unique institution. Can you, can you just globally, if we can look at comparable jurisdictions, can you describe where you think the PC fits into the policy cycle in Australia? What is it? Is it initiating? Is it um, uh, doing reviews in, in hindsight? Where, where, what, what's the, how would you describe the PC's role in developing policy in, in the country? So I think at its best, it's a, an organisation which can change the debate over the long term. Uh, avowedly, we're not really into the short term uh, policy issues of the day, although sometimes we will have a report with recommendations that the government will enact um, reasonably quickly. But I think our most totemic work has been the work which has basically shifted opinion over a longer period of time. Mm-hmm. It, it is an interesting question you raise about what are the kind of global uh, peers that the Productivity Commission has, because in a way in recent years there's been a bit of a move towards establishing Productivity Commissions or like bodies at least notionally like bodies across mm. much of the OECD. And in fact, the European Commission has a, um, so it's actually a kind of requirement or edict that, that member nations establish some sort of productivity board a bit like the PC. But often the function looks a little bit different. So in, in much of Europe, the, the nature of the entity tends to be one that's much more focused on productivity issues narrowly, so productivity research and the like. Where, where we have evolved as a commission is essentially to be a broad public policy mm-hmm. advisor, albeit not always an advisor in the here and now, 
And there are fewer entities globally that share that, that characteristic, like that have that degree of independence from government, but are basically doing policy research across a broad range of, of things. New Zealand is similar, it's much smaller, uh, and it doesn't have the same breadth of uh, flexibility within its act to, to do its own initiate, self-initiated research and the like, but it's got a broadly similar remit uh, and it's a bit newer, uh, so it's similar, um, but it's it's an unusual organisation in many ways, but it's, it has been over the years a, a successful one. Uh, it strikes me that um, uh, productivity is one of... I mean, it's quite easily defined word in a dictionary definition, but it's broadly bastardised in public policy debate. And you even said then that um, the Productivity Commission's role is is probably broader than just productivity as a lens, although that is a, a sort of a core element of what you do. I wonder if you could just um, well explain what uh, explain what productivity is, or, or give us a brief history of productivity, or, or however you'd like to answer that. But but a sense of what it what it means to the Productivity Commission and therefore to the, 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 the policy work that you do. Yeah. So mathematically, productivity is, uh, labour productivity at least, is GDP per hour worked. That's the, um, that's the metric, right? So the total value of output produced in an economy uh, divided by the amount of labour input. Um, and a couple of things that are important about that. One is that it's, it's a real quantity rather than a nominal quantity. So it's really not uh, about the terms of trade or uh, other kinds of nominal impacts on uh, economic values. It's really about the, the real output. You're trying to get proxies for the real output that's delivered for the real, um, the real input that, that's put into the process. Productivity is, in one sense, a... Um, you could say it's a relatively recent phenomenon. Certainly productivity growth is a relatively recent phenomenon. I mean, one of the most remarkable things about human history is the fact that for thousands upon thousands of years, uh, humans were basically very poor until the period in the Western world, in Great Britain and Western Europe, uh, at the beginning of the 19th century, where suddenly real incomes just shot through the roof and continued on this uh, steep upward trajectory, followed by the United States and, and later countries like Australia, and then followed yet yet later by countries uh, such as Japan, South Korea, Singapore and the like, um, more recently China to some extent, uh, where living standards just kind of rose um, and, and exploded kind of almost out of nowhere and then continued on that on that astronomic rise. And that was but largely because human beings worked out how to do things smarter, how to basically get more output for, for less input, combination of... Uh, invention, technological invention, but also institutions, um, a range of, if you like, social inventions like the limited liability company and the credit card and, um, you know, double entry bookkeeping and, and all those things that have kind of gone along with uh, the physical technological invent, uh, inventions like steam and uh, the ability to, um, you know, well, and, then, and then followed by electricity, followed ultimately by computing power and the like. So, in a way, the you know that, that's been the path of of human history in recent times, um, albeit it's gone through a bit of you know some waves and fluctuations. And in in when you look, you drill down into more recent data. I guess you'd observe that uh, in Australia, for example, we had a a period where our relative productivity uh, declined in the post-war period, say relative to the United States. 
Um, and then, and, and certainly relative to the remainder of the OECD, although the OECD was partly, um, you know, developed economies in, in Europe and the like were starting to rebuild from post-war devastation. Uh, but then in the 1990s and, and the 2000s, Australian living standards started to rise again. Uh, so we have had ebbs and flows within our own relative history. And the, that period of the 1990s, whilst opinions will differ about precisely where you attribute all of the causation for that period of high productivity growth, uh, to a large extent it does appear to be a combination of the global influence of computing and IT technology, but also a dividend from the reforms of the 1980s in opening the Australian economy up to greater competition uh, and the like. And uh, the, the question I think before us as we, as we look forward is how do you continue to drive those productivity improvements, which are ultimately um, the, the big driver of living standards. So that that, uh, that period that you mentioned in the 90s, um, the, the microeconomic reform period there in the 80s and 90s, that was, as I understand it, that's, um, that was one of the Productivity Commission's current iteration's uh, primary functions, wasn't it? Uh, overseeing and monitoring the, the reforms from the national competition policy. Um, is that it, it, have, I, have I understood that background correctly? And, and, and can you talk us through a little bit more about how the Productivity Commission fell into that uh, responsibility and, and, and what it was doing before that? Yeah, so the, it, it's interesting. The, the period of the 80s and 90s uh, was a, a period of much reform. And to Adrian's earlier point, you know, I think one where we probably look and impose great order uh, and logic on it after the event and the people who are cl- most closely associated with it at the time often say, well, it's not, you know, it wasn't quite um, as linear and sequential as you might think. Uh, the, the role of the, the Productivity Commission in its current form and named the Productivity Commission really only came about in 1998, 1999. So we're, we're just over 20 years old. Prior to that, the entity had been the Industry Commission. Uh, prior to that, the Industry's Assistance Commission and prior to that, the Tariff Board. And coming out of the period of, of the tariff board, particularly the, the issue on which, the, for which with which the tariff board was most closely associated was obviously trade policy. And particularly around the 1960s, the tariff board basically had become more and more a strong advocate for freer trade and reduced trade protection in the Australian economy, which at that point put it a little on a collision course both with manufacturing but to some extent with agricultural interests in, in the Australian economy. And that followed through in its subsequent iterations as the as the IAC and then the Industry Commission in the 80s and early 90s. Uh, and I would still say that pr- probably trade uh, was the, the big thing, the reduction in tariff barriers uh, to, to um effectively open up uh, domestic markets to greater import competition was probably the key thing on which I would say the the PC's predecessors were involved. Though by the early 1990s, it was also starting to get terms of reference on a range of other industry reform issues, telecommunications Mm. and and the like, uh, government business enterprises, that sort of thing. And with NCP, um, I certainly wouldn't claim that NCP was uh, invented or conceived by um, the the PC's antecedents, but uh, because it was more the government of the day and the bureaucracy of the day. But we did have a role in reviewing some of the 
if effects of, of NCP and coming up with some uh, estimates of of the benefit. Um, and so, in a way, the I would say the commission has been um, certainly the commission can't claim credit for every bit of economic reform that's ever occurred in Australia. That would be um, a massive stretch. But it's often been involved either either centrally in the context of trade or kind of a, a, bit, a bit at the margins or as a, a partner entity in a range of other a range of other cases. My observation would be um, that I, I've read some of that early work the industry commission did from the nineties and and lots of subsequent reports from the productivity commission over the last decade or so. And what's what's striking about them is that they were they were right at the time and they're mostly right now. I mean, even some of those early 1990s industry commission reports that, that start to talk about things um, like road user charging, like ownership of um, um, energy networks and, and the appropriate way to corporatize and, and have different ownership models for utilities. All of that stuff is sensible reforms that have been done, I guess, opportunistically over the, the 30 years that have followed. But their their opportunism built off there having been a roadmap created, but or, or a, a true north created by the industry commission and then subsequently the the productivity commission would be my kind of reflection on that that, you know, that creating that mean for governments to return to over time. Yeah, oh, I think that's right, and I, and I think in in some ways there were some. Um, some strong kind of conceptual prize that the commission had, but it was always uh, at pains to test those prize against real world evidence. Mm. So it was always, you know, there would be a, I guess, a view about uh, what was likely to be an ideal market structure with greater clarity, uh, greater, you know, competition, uh, the competition on the right sorts of, um, in the, you know, the right sort of, axes, if you like, well-regulated, well-informed competition and the like, um, you know, where, where um, structural separation might make sense or not, those sorts of things, um, always tested against real-world evidence. The, the thing that has probably shifted and, and evolved over time is that the range of topics that, with which the Commission is involved has has broadened, and that's a long-term trend. This is not a recent thing, but from the late 1990s onwards, probably with the uh, problem gambling inquiry, it was an example of the commission being thrown an issue which was vexed, complex, challenging, but for which it, you know there was less of the sort of conventional market economic logic that you could just apply. You know, the, the the kind of um, superficial application of market principles would just be to say, well, people gamble, that's their choice. Um, there's consumer surplus associated with that. Uh, we shouldn't, shouldn't really stand in the way of it. In, in reality, what the Commission did with that was to identify that as the superficial view and then to ask the question, well, what, how would you alter the conventional economic argument in the context of people who've got a problem? So if, if, you, if you're addicted to gambling, you're a problem gambler. What assumptions can we make about, to, to use the economic lingo, the area under the demand curve representing consumer surplus? Maybe you can't because not every dollar of gambling for a problem gambler is a good thing for them. Uh, how can we best and most rigorously kind of reflect that in a bit of analysis that nonetheless maintains a bit of rigour? Mm -hmm. uh, 
So the problem gambling was kind of a watershed, I think, for the Commission in terms of the application of rigorous principles, but to a slightly unconventional policy issue. And, and then a very, we were, very, early, uh, very early recognition that not people don't always make 100% self-beneficial, rational decisions. Correct. That's right. And, and particularly in certain settings. They, they may in some markets, but not others. Can we dive into that just a little bit more? Because it's a, it's a very interesting point, just the breadth of issues that the, that the Commission is dealing with. Um, to, to something earlier that we were discussing, traditionally this kind of work in comparable jurisdictions, especially the UK and the US, is done by think tanks. The think tanks would be aligned either, you know, they describe themselves as conservative or liberal or nonpartisan or they're funded by somebody. But they, you can generally try and unpick what their driving ideology is. Um, and what you, as you've just described, there's, there's, it's the Productivity Commission doesn't necessarily have that kind of predetermined driving ideology. But so, can you, what what would you describe it as? Is it is, is it driven by the commissioner? Is it driven by you? Is it driven by the prime minister at the time? Is it is is there something else that unifies the conclusions that the productivity commission makes across such a wide range of policy discussions? Look, I, I think there are still broad principles that uh, ideally help help these reports to hang together, and so we still try to bring a strong conceptual frame. Um, so how would you describe but, that? Well, uh, I think it's more, you know, it, it, 20 years ago, I think there was probably uh, a stronger sense that we brought with us uh, a set of um, a kind of a house view, basically, that, um, you know, there should be less trade barriers, there should be more, um, you know, the, uh, concern about, um, you know, the, the most regulation, you know, on, on balance, a lot of regulation was on balance fairly costly and the like. I think increasingly because of the areas in which we have been operating, uh, A, there's less of a perception that we're bringing particular prize or that we have kind of a you know a house view that's just getting applied to each thing. Um, but I guess what we try to do is to identify, um, you know, sort of start with some first principles and then test them against, against the evidence. Um, we still probably start with, you know, some basic prize that if... We'd be looking for to, to see whether individual consumer choice can work uh, to, to drive both innovation and competition in, in a market. Um, but we're open to the possibility that it's not necessarily going to work or it won't work seamlessly or it could actually be harmful in particular instances. But we'd be looking to, to kind of test the precise extent of that, I, I guess. I mean, I'll, I'll give you a couple of examples that are um, probably give you a bit of a sense of the, you know, the real world application of these things. So, so using this uh, study that we had done into uh, indigenous funding, or it's really about family services funding in the Northern Territory, but a lot of that funding is flowing into indigenous communities um, because it's really the money that's there to protect against harm to children as a kind of preventative part of. The, where the child protection uh, services is the tertiary end. And I guess two areas on that where we would probably have brought priors would be firstly that uh, this is an area where there's a lot of Northern Territory money and a lot of Commonwealth money. And, and our basic terms of reference were to try and untangle uh, some of that spending, try and identify where it's being spent, but also identify are there better ways of spending it. For the most part, we probably 
would have come at this issue with a view that uh, the subsidiarity principle is was an important principle, i.e. that it was probably uh, ideal for the tier of government that's closest to the ground to make uh, most of the decisions. So that might militate in favour of the Commonwealth rather than delivering a whole lot of specific programs on the ground, maybe just cutting a cheque to the NT government, a, a national partnership arrangement, and letting the Northern Territory uh, make those decisions. When you get into the actual reality on the ground, you realise that for a whole host of reasons, that's not really necessarily a particularly practical or desirable uh, end. It's going to be very difficult to provide those sorts of clear lines of accountability. Um, there, there, is, there are plenty of stakeholders on the ground who actually want to have both jurisdictions heavily involved. There are often good reasons why certain things shouldn't be funded by the Northern Territory Government, um, but, but should be funded. And so we kind of had to step back a little bit from that and, and try and identify, well, how can you at least get two tiers of government to work more closely together in a more integrated fashion, um, but moving away from what, what might have been the kind of the superficial initial view of, oh, well, we'll just replace two tiers of government with one. That would be, that would be so much simpler. A similar issue arose in relation to the question of evaluation of money being spent, where, you know, the conventional view, I guess, for a lot of economists and a lot of policymakers is, well, what you want is robust quantitative data-led evaluation of, of, of the standard of like a randomised control trial. You know, you really need to have a control group in order to assess what, what is the impact of the intervention that you're putting in place, etc. Again, when you get to looking at the specifics of the context in which you're operating here, you start to realise, well, hang on a minute, that, that's going to be impossible in this world. There are, you know, you can go to an individual Indigenous community and find that there are 20, 30, 40 individual programs running in parallel. So, so how on earth are you ever going to kind of distill the isolated impact of the particular thing, that a particular program that an agency is, is running in that area? Uh, so you're going to have a huge attribution problem. The idea of running, you know, evaluations, quantitative evaluations on an RCT type, of an RCT type standard is, is fanciful. So you've just got to kind of get your hands dirty and work out what's feasible in that sort of circumstance. And I just think more and more of our work is a bit along those lines. I apologise, slightly long-winded um, answer, but, it, you know, more and more there, there are instances where you might bring um, a particular initial view and then you test it against the evidence and you find, well, actually, it's not... Uh, that initial view isn't quite as strong. Is that, um, is that to some extent driven by all the all the big things having been done, and you're now being asked to do um, more granular, um, or you take on more granular challenges, more more tricky, um, more, more wicked challenges? Yeah, I think I think that is possible. Yeah, I, I mean, there are no doubt still big issues that are. Uh, and potentially big issues that are amenable to the, the big lever, if you like. I guess it's the, um, maybe it's not the scale of the issue so much as the nature of the policy solution, but there are a number of, so there are a number of big issues associated with Aboriginal disadvantage, for example, or the lack of integration in our health system between the different parts, Commonwealth, state, et cetera. But they are less amenable to the the, the pulling of the, the big lever. You know, the mm. you cut this tax rate, or you cut the tariff, or you float the dollar. 
and, and I, I'm always a bit wary of that sort of account in part because I, I never want to be construed as saying that those past reforms were easy because they were anything but. They, they, were, they were intellectually challenging and they were politically challenging. Um, these ones, it, it's, it's just that the nature of the solution, I think, is often a bit different. Often we may, we're talking about a kind of an ongoing evolutionary process, if, if you think about how do you get a more integrated health system. Well, it's probably not a big single pulling of a, a tax lever or a regulatory lever. Uh, and, uh, and, yeah, they're hard. I mean, all these issues are hard. But um, So how, how are they coming to you, Michael? Are they – it's a uh... – uh, and, and uh, let me explain a little bit of the context because, you know, Obama actually said something kind of similar at, at some stage during his term that um, the easy solutions don't come to my desk. They're dealt with somewhere else. So the trickiest ones are the ones that are supposed to come to you. Um, what, what do you – are they – is government always um, coming to you with questions, tricky questions that they want solved? Are you sometimes self-initiating inquiries that um, you just feel like need addressing? What's, what's the balance and, and, and how does it usually happen? So about 80% of our work – there's a rough figure – but 80% of our work will come from government. So it will come in the form of terms of reference to us. It does vary in, in its nature. So I, I would – I divide it along two axes. One is I think there is about, of the work we get from government, you could say roughly half is of a conventional microeconomic kind of character. So the report we did, for example, into the regulation of airports, or we recently did a review on national transport regulation, I would say that fits within a, a fairly traditional economic um, sort of classification uh, for, you know, slightly artificial distinction. And then some of it is things like the report we, we got underway in mental health or we had a veterans report earlier in the year and the like. So some areas that broadly classified as social policy. So I think that's one axis of the division or classification. The other is probably the scale. So there are some that we get that are very, very significant issues which are uh, get a lot of attention and are quite... Uh, salient in the community and broad base. So mental health is an example of that. I'd say the superannuation work that we did uh, now a couple of years ago is in that category. But we get a lot of smaller scale stuff too. We're, we're involved often in a report or an area that's of particular interest or focus for a sector, uh, for jurisdiction, like the work we did on the Northern Territory. And uh, so with all that, it's good to have the mix. You know, it's good to have the blockbusters. It's good to have the more um, localised or, or narrow uh, things they're always interesting, even when you know they they may not be necessarily the the sort of groundbreaking big reform issues. But what, what's uh, the, what's the secret sauce that that's that makes a, a treasurer or someone or whichever whoever ends up referring the work to you? What's the secret ingredient that means productivity commission is best place to solve it rather than um, you know energy has God knows how many. Uh, regulatory governance agencies that might also be capable of doing it. How do when do they decide? Do you think that's it? This is a this is a problem for Michael Brennan. Yeah, I, I think that the three basic ingredients we bring to the to the table are firstly typically time. So we, we a normal inquiry would take around twelve months. So it does whilst it's it's not um, in practice as, ever as long as it sounds. It is a it's a fair investment of time. We do have independence and independence not merely from the uh, immediate ebb and flow of what's going on in, in the political world, but also independence in the sense that we're not um, a stakeholder in, in the immediate issue, right? So we're not um, 
you know, we undertake a report into mental health, but we're not a we're not a health body or we're not the, a peak body for mental health practitioners or anything like that. So there's no sense of uh, ownership or or interest, if, if you like, as in vested interest in in where we're coming from. And the final thing is, I think there is a very institutionalised and rigorous process of seeking public input. So the the fact that there is a mandatory uh, process of uh, putting out an issues paper, taking public submissions, putting out a draft report, which is public, and then can you know people can hurl stones at it and disagree and, and agree, whatever, and a public debate can ensue, and a process of public hearings, typically for full inquiry and further submissions, is just a process that I think can give government a degree of uh, comfort that all viewpoints are being uh, accommodated. They're not necessarily all of equal uh, persuasion, right? And, and, and they won't all win the day, but but at least there's a process by which, and a transparent process by which these alternative viewpoints can be canvassed. Um, I might, Michael, you've spoken extensively there about the, the long-term nature, the arm's length from the day-to-day, but um, I think all of us right now, and we're, we're speaking in, in early May 2020, are consumed to some extent by the here and now. Um, because of, of COVID-19. Um, maybe you could talk us through what role you think the Productivity Commission can have, and both now in the immediate recovery from this crisis, but the longer term, um, the longer term perhaps opportunities that arise from um, reforms that will follow coronavirus and what, what the, the Commission's role will be in that process. Yeah, I think it's important that... Uh, we, like everybody else, uh, have to adapt a bit to the circumstance and nobody is left completely unchanged, right, by uh, the, the challenges of the coronavirus. Uh, so even, you know, for us in thinking about our medium-term work, um, both the work that we'll get from government and the sort of research that we would do uh, which is the other 20% of the work, you know, the, the self-initiated research that we would do. We have to be very mindful, I think, and, and invest a bit in determining what uh, our best view about how the economy might evolve uh, coming out of COVID-19. Uh, so I think the pandemic has required that we um, probably t- put greater focus on how the economy is evolving, how the economy is likely to evolve, in, in the months and years ahead, uh, which at one level is you know very very difficult to know, right? We're still at a point where I think there's great uncertainty, but but we're probably more focused on that as a contextual factor for our work than than we would normally be. I think, as a, at a matter of practicality, you know we are you know by our nature, as I said, we, we're an entity that undertakes work that we think is important. Obviously, it's not always work that's urgent, and. At, at the peak of the uh, health response to the pandemic and, and the, the, all of the focus of the APS really would, had to be on kind of how do we ensure that we're delivering services, you know, getting good policy advice to government and the like. And they're not things that the Productivity Commission traditionally does. We don't, you know, quite unashamedly, that, that's not really us. So we have, just as a matter of... Uh, a matter of practicality sought to provide a bit of assistance to um, agencies that are more closely involved in the in the COVID response. We've made uh, made the offer of people to provide a bit of backfill and 
overflow capacity to the Treasury, um, both in terms of people, but also the ability to undertake a bit of analysis here and there that could feed into Treasury advice, just noting that the, the Treasury and the central agencies have been at times very, very stretched, uh, mm. trying to deal with the demands of, of what they were confronting. And, and we felt we had potentially some staff capability which could assist in that direction. Now, you never want to get too sucked into the, the day-to-day stuff, but it, it was kind of consistent with a view that we should all be doing our bit. And uh, But it has also helped us, I think, to kind of form a bit of a view about what what might the priorities be coming out of this and what, what might the world look like, which, as I say, is still, still very uncertain. Um, so do you expect the, the government will... Um, that the best use of the PC will be to dust off some some of the earlier reform recommendations, or is there something different that that is likely to be needed in in, in the short and medium term? Well, in a way, the government's been explicit about the fact that some past productivity commission work will will be informative in helping guide a bit of the post. Uh, policy in the in the recovery and post-recovery phase, including the shifting the dial report from 2017. Uh, so that, that's pleasing that the uh, aspects of past commission reports are, uh, remain informative and potentially um, persuasive and influential with government. Um, as to where else our attentions might be directed, that, that is largely a matter for government. What's your hunch? Without without preempting some uh, extensive inquiry, what do we what do we need to do to, for stimulus? And how, what, what's what, what's the government uh, likely to pursue to get us out of this uh, situation? I wouldn't dare speculate about where we might be involved. I think you know, but but the the government has been pretty explicit, and I think the national cabinet as a whole pretty explicit that. Uh, partly informed by the, the views that both the Reserve Bank Governor and the Treasury Secretary have put to them, that policy in the future, um, as the Prime Minister put it, will, will need to be more pro-growth and explicitly pro-growth than perhaps it had been in the past, uh, reflecting both the need for a, you know, as rapid a possible path to recovery, but also beyond that, we'll be in a world where uh, we, we will need to boost productivity growth uh, to deal with the legacy issues of this episode. Um, there, there'll be a, a fiscal building paid and a generic sense about a stimulus then, Michael. The infrastructure, I think, has rightly been spoken about as a potential uh, or, or almost um, intrinsic part of any future stimulus that's required and by all levels of government. But the objective of a stimulus is to um, primarily to get money into the economy. So you could see, therefore, that productivity might um, might not be um, might not be helped by the objective of, of, of simply you know, getting people employed. So there's good stimulus and, and bad stimulus from a productivity perspective. Do you think there's there's a role that organisations like the Productivity Commission, maybe some of the other independent bodies that um, are around the Infrastructure Australia and those types of organisations could could play in making uh, making sure that there is a any stimulus that's delivered is a good stimulus that it does do things that enhance productivity over time. It does things that are um, sort of the optimised end of that um, that equation. Yeah, I think, I mean, without speculating about our role, it's clearly it's an important question and it's an important part of the policy debate. I mean, I, I think um, 
in a way, there is, you're right to say there's often a trade-off between the idea of getting money into the economy quickly versus getting money well spent. Mm. And, you know, when I think back, for example, to the 2008-9 episode, there were uh, contrasting, often states had contrasting approaches to spending the money that was part of the building the education revolution uh, agenda, for example. Some that wanted to, you know, consistent with the idea of stimulus, get the money out there as quickly as possible, um, but often it end up, ended up being poorly spent. Other states that wanted to take the time to make sure the projects were, you know, well, well scoped and the like, but of course then the money was being spent well down the track long after the, the case for stimulus had, in a macroeconomic sense, kind of passed. And that is a, that is a kind of um, salient lesson, I think, that there can be a trade-off between, uh, you know, something that gives you the right macroeconomic impact early versus what might help build um, greater productivity growth over time. I suspect that's really the, you know, that has been the thinking of um, Governor Lowe in talking a lot about infrastructure because it's it, it's potentially the sort of thing that can tick more than one box. It can get some money flowing into the economy, but it can be uh, building assets if they're well selected and well executed that can then have a productivity dividend for the community in time. And there's also, I think, um, one of the things that's emerged that's different to um, the sort of 2008 piece that you spoke about is that a view that governments are going to need to support aggregate demand in the economy for a fairly long time, just because of the depth of this, uh, the economic impact of this, the economic scarring that will occur, or the permanent job losses. There's probably a, a need to look at those smaller, high-velocity projects, but also the big, chunky, longer-term, higher productivity impact things, because they will support the economy for that extended period of time. Yeah. I think that's right. I think that's right. I mean, we, in one sense, we don't know, um, but but the longer, or as things evolve, I guess um, more and more, I guess we're realizing that what we will see is at best a progressive relaxation of restrictions, such that the, uh, you know, there will be some restrictions that remain in place for quite some time. That'll have economic impact, and so even if in aggregate the the, the economy can kind of bounce back uh, quickly. There will be uh, there'll be some compositional change within the economy, uh, and there may well need, as you say, be, be a need to kind of uh, you know maintain a focus on on boosting economic activity for for longer. So what we're dis- discussing now, in some sense, is I guess um, the demand boosting measures, macroeconomic. Uh, policies in some respect and infrastructure, I guess, crosses both of those lines in the sense that it's demand boosting and productivity boosting potentially, if the, as you mentioned, if it's the right right project. Is there any, we've heard a few things from um, a few rumblings from treasurers that I'm sure gave you some confidence that uh, we might see the removal of stamp duty replaced with land tax. There's been some discussion of road pricing. What, um, what, it, it, do you think, is there anything that for you, for the Productivity Commission, out of those major um, infrastructure-related uh, policy areas that uh, is priority number one, you think, that is, you know, high impact and also relatively easy to do tomorrow? And sorry, that, that's an exaggeration. Obviously, none yeah. of them are easy, but, but no. um, implementable. 
No, nothing, nothing is easy and there's probably not a single priority number one. But I, I guess when I look back on the, the shifting the dial report from two or three years ago, there, there are probably three areas that jump out as being areas which are um, potentially, you know, a bit, a bit broad areas that are kind of actionable and important in the current environment. One is regulatory policy. One is everything that was brought together under the banner of cities policy. And one is is the everything that was brought together under the banner of skills policy. So on the cities policy, it was partly about the robust selection of projects for, for infrastructure, uh, but also it did get into the, the question of pricing infrastructure use. Uh, and, you know, on that, I mean, I, you know, there aren't quick wins because you have to move gradually, but I think there's a fair degree of consensus now that we need to both replace as a revenue source the fuel excise for the purposes of uh, road funding uh, and also ensure that we have an equitable um, sharing of the burden of, mm. of road funding uh, and also ultimately that some pricing can play a role in potentially easing congestion that you can't ultimately fully build your way out of congestion you're going to need some price signal to contribute to that but I see that as a long journey I think it's just the main issue there is that we should uh, make a start and try and develop solutions which are politically sustainable um, to ensure that there's a, a kind of a, it's a steady journey um, without straining the metaphor too many too many bumps in the road. I think a lesson on on stamp duty and land tax. I mean, the, the, again, this is an area where there's been very strong consensus from economists, policymakers, politicians themselves. Uh, the challenge has been that it is. It is both fiscally and politically very hard because the stamp duty has hitherto raised very substantial amounts of money. I mean, in, in, in uh, not so much right now, but in uh, go back a year or so, it would have raised about eight billion dollars or so in New South Wales, maybe about six in Victoria. So it's a very difficult tax to replace fully. Does that make now the best time to pursue that kind of policy, given that? There's no revenue to lose at the moment. It's all it's it's gonna well not it's not zero, but there's no there's re- really very few houses changing hands. Is now the best time to implement that kind of change? Well, well, possibly. I mean, it it, it is uh, you know ultimately that'll be a kind of a, a judgment to be made by state governments. But I think there's a case to be made for that. That, mm. that it becomes a little easier when um, when the revenue isn't quite as bountiful. Um, so I, I want to go back to the road user charging thing, if if we can, and I particularly like your framing around charging first and pricing second, because I think um, that accords with our view about how it should be approached. But your your predecessor, Peter Harris, um, gave a speech um, towards the very end of his tenure as um, chair of the commission, saying that it was his uh, road user charging was the one area, the ra- the the last great unpriced utility. Um, being roads, and that it was the the sort of one regret from his career to that point in public life that there hadn't been more progress made on it. And um, you mentioned pragmatism, incrementalism. Where do you think that that sort of spark of the the start of the thin end of the wedge of reform in in road user charging might emerge? Yeah. So I I don't have a a really strict view that it has to be charging before pricing, for example, though that's an arguable case because it's it's consistent, maybe consistent with that kind of incremental view. Um, I, I do think that the combination of a, uh, 
um, fiscal challenge, if not a burning platform, certainly the fiscal challenge of the fact that the excise revenue will uh, continue to fall in, in real terms and as a share of GDP, and that that leaves a, a revenue problem for governments collectively to deal with uh, in terms of funding road improvements, and you've got to get the money from somewhere. So I think that that contributes to the case, and I also think there is, uh, you know, an emerging equity case uh, around the use of electrical electric vehicles in particular, but fuel efficient vehicles in general. Uh, that you know, paying for the upkeep of roads is really should be independent of the of the source of fuel that you're using. And I, so I think there is a case to. Um, at least step in and start to ensure a, a bit of equity in the contributions being made. Um, so, you know, maybe there is a, an opening for governments at the moment to, to try and um, move a bit down this path, um, not, not so much for kind of, um, you know, abstract economic reasons, but just the very practical issues of making sure that we, we do have a robust funding source and that people are contributing to it in an equi equitable way. Um, uh, so if I can just unpack that. So that's consistent with the sort of things Infrastructure Partnerships Australia has said about um, ensuring that those ultra-fuel efficient and electric vehicles are, are brought into the um, the charging regime or the funding regime in, in an equivalent way to the sort of average of fuel excise um, that's raised from other vehicles. I think there's a case to be made. And, and in a way, the two things obviously are linked because the reason the excise is falling in real terms is because of the, the, the penetration of fuel efficient and, and uh, electric vehicles. Um, so I think there's a, uh, you know, there's a case to be made for a... Uh, a new way of a new way of doing things, and um, you know th that would be perfectly consistent with a very evolutionary approach. Do you have a sense, Michael, for what what uh, what's been holding it holding transport back? And it's not just roads; it's it's you know public transport cost recovery is is abysmal. Um, there was a period that the four major sort of um, economic infrastructure sectors went through in the 90s, which which we discussed earlier, where um, that corporatization and cost recovery were, were driving objectives of that period. Um, what, 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 why, how did transport get left off that uh, reform uh, agenda? And, and, and is, it, is, it, is it something that, is there something fundamental that makes it more difficult in transport than those other sectors? That's a very interesting question because it, it, um, it's hard to identify the thing that would really separate it. I mean, it, yes, they're broadly based services used by a lot of people where uh, there's a, you know, you're paying a price which is fairly transparent. But of course, it's true of energy, telecommunications, water and the like. Uh, so it, it is hard to know kind of what, what separates it. I mean, I, I wonder whether... Uh, you know, sometimes some, you know, some clear-headed analysis is required on what the, the trade-offs are. Um, you know, it, it strikes me that the sometimes the decision-making around 
cost recovery, say on the public transport network, is not really so much a decision about cost recovery as per se. It's not, you know, it's in my experience, not always the case that um, state cabinets or expenditure review committees are sitting down making a really strategic decision about how where they want to take the overall level of cost recovery from this from the system over time and how that's going to translate into incremental annual steps. It's often uh, kind of an annual decision taken pretty late in the year uh, preceding, you know, what should fares go up by on January 1st? Should it be CPI? Should it be something else? Um, there was a the, the, there was IPART had the unenviable task for a long time of pretending to um, back solve a, a, a cost recovery against a regulated asset base for transport in New South Wales, and I think in this determination they've given up on it because it's just it's impossible when when cost recovery is twenty percent. I mean it's it's not it's not an a it's just a completely different exercise. It's not the yeah. the quantifiable exercise that you were, that you were describing there. No, and, and at least the IPAR process had some degree of transparency, even if governments could then choose which what, what's the level of cost recovery that mm. we're, going to, we're going to pitch for. But, of course, most states don't even have that. Yeah. So they don't have the arm's length analysis going on. Uh, so, you know, I, I mean, I, I think in a lot of places there's kind of a view that, um, you know, it, it would be unfair to uh, recover too much money from the public transport system because that might only encourage uh, use of private transport so that that those questions start to loom large. Of course, those two things aren't always necessarily close substitutes. People are using the two modes of transport for quite different reasons, um, quite different types of transport within within our cities. Uh, but uh, it is hard. It is hard to know what why why has it been difficult to get a more more rigorous discussion. I mean, there may well be good reasons why you wouldn't hundred percent obviously sure, sure. public transport fares. Uh, it's it's just the fact that there's not at the moment any particularly scientific process to determine what is the appropriate level. Do you see a? I guess PwC is actually doing some 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 thought leadership work on this right now. It's it's an interesting uh, issue because the end state has been defined. We all know that the the um, where the objective that. Uh, is ideal for the sector, for particular in a, in a road pricing and public transport fares sense. What seems to be missing is the answer to that question that that you were trying to answer before. What's what's what are the interim steps? What's what's what? Why can't we do it? Do you see a role for the Productivity Commission in in doing the thinking there, or because the, I guess your traditional role would be helping define that long-term objective, do you see a role to help develop those more interim measures that will get us to the long-term objective? You know, I potentially do. I, I think it's a it's a, often a debate that we grapple with internally ourselves. You know, is our role to kind of identify the end state or is our role to identify the, the precise path by which to get mm. there? And sometimes the, the, the problem with trying to identify the precise path is um, not, not so much that it might involve us in the murky business of of implementation, which can be murky, but so much as um, we want to be respectful of the things that we uniquely bring to the table versus the things where others might have a comparative advantage. So often it's the case that uh, people in government agencies and, and government ministers themselves got a pretty good idea how to implement something once they've got a sense of what the what the endpoint is. Uh, and you know we're not so much the experts in that, so we should just just identify the endpoint and let, and let them go with it. 
I think it's the the question is what are those instances where applying a bit of judgment, um, you, you can kind of see that government's grappling with these issues, um, but they just don't have a really clear way through and often don't really have the time to, to give it much thought. And, and probably the stamp duty land tax issue fits a bit into that into that uh, category. And I, and I think maybe rate users are charging a little bit too. You know, what, what are some of the the way, you, you, what is the sensitivity, uh, and, and sorry, transport pricing in general, what, what is the sensitivity and how can you try and identify a few options that would at least um, help, help government through? Uh, is there only one way, for example? And I think it's, I think it is uh, good within limits for agencies like ourselves to be a little bit involved in those things, not, not to dilute our overall mission of identifying endpoints, um, but um, having a little bit of an eye to what are some of the practical options that could help get government there. You gave us a brief history of productivity. I might just ask you to get your crystal ball out and tell us what the future of productivity is. Well, it's a very good, very good question. Uh, you know, I think in the immediate term, the, it, you, you can look back on past historical episodes of how have economies fared as they have come out of recessionary periods. Um, but I don't know that that's particular, going to be a particularly reliable guide in this instance. I mean, uh, you know, coming out of the 1990s, we had a significant recession with a lot of uh, shedding of labour and the like. Um, but that is an episode where we saw reasonably rapid bounce back in, in demand and, and, and economic growth through 1993, 1994, etc. Uh, and actually the 1990s, you know, brought about a significant uh, uptick in measured labour productivity. Now, there are people um, whom I respect who would actually note that some of that productivity uplift may have been a measurement issue, that there were actually resources, both labour and capital, which were effectively notionally being utilised as per the statistics, but in, in reality being underutilised through the period of the recession. And then as they came to full fuller capacity utilisation, it was sort of showing up as an increase in output without an increase in input, ipso facto increase in productivity growth. Uh, and I think there is, you know, there is potentially something to that explanation, though I, I doubt that it's the whole story. The question is, will we see something similar coming out of, of this episode? I mean, part of the challenge is whether or not, uh, you know, how, how quick it will be. Um, I think, you know, productivity no doubt has taken a bit of a hit from um, the challenge of remote working, uh, remote working combined with homeschooling and the like. Uh, so, so I don't know that we will see necessarily a, a really quick uptick in measured, in measured productivity. Um, we may, as I said, see a requirement that some some labour shifts, uh, you know, from from sector to sector and occupation to occupation. That that it's not just a case of every everyone going back to the job they were doing in February 2020. Um, we may well see, to the extent that some restrictions remain with us, uh, a need for some structural adjustment in the economy. And and all of that to me suggests that it may take time for productivity growth to rebound. But that's follow-up question to that which is are our, are our measures our economic measures productivity and others um adequate for the the the, the world as it is now i you know, one thinks about a lot of um the, the, the massive impact um information technology and data has had on 
um, on the world of work over the past two decades. Um, and we think we're all a lot more productive, but maybe that hasn't come out in the, the way it's measured. Are there frailties to the measurement or is it just that these things haven't been as impactful on productivity as, as we think they have? Uh, it's potentially a bit of both, Adrian. I think the there are frailties to the measures, but, but to some extent there always have been. Uh, as, as people will point out, you know, in the recovery from natural disasters and the like, you have a big um, building effort which doesn't actually improve um, well-being compared with the pre-existing situation. Is rebuilding assets that you used to have and then lost, um, but it all shows up as growth. So, in one sense, the, the idea of GDP, you know, a, a kind of um, output-based notion of GDP is has always been, to some extent, if not misleading, at least incomplete as a, as a guide to economic well-being. I think the question as to whether or not there is significant productivity growth that's being missed by the statistics is an interesting one. I mean, in one sense, uh, it, it is entirely possible because that, that there is a bit of that going on, though you know, respected commentators basically are of the view that it's just not big enough it's not plausibly big enough to explain the slow productivity growth that we've observed over the last decade. So it can't all be a measurement problem. And I guess one way of kind of keeping it anchored in, in the real world is just as we know that um, over the long term, real wage growth and productivity growth, labour productivity growth have tended to move hand in hand. Um, the fact that we have seen slow real wage growth tells you something about what underlying productivity growth actually is. Uh, and that, that suggests that it's that it's been relatively slow. On the longer term question of where, where to with productivity growth, I, I, I will say this, I think the big um, issue that we will confront is that we have seen um, a couple of things that have driven productivity growth in the past, which have been significant waves, if you like, and that often get referred to as general purpose technologies like electricity, you know, a, a big new technology that then can be rolled out quite broadly across the economy and kind of and, and often spawns further innovations. And there's a bit of a debate about whether AI could be of that kind of, uh, you know, that significance in the same way that electricity was and, and maybe coal before that. The one thing that I think is, is an interesting thing to think about in terms of how economies will continue to maintain strong productivity growth is what strong productivity growth looks like in a services-based economy. Because in... In many of our traditional goods producing economies, agriculture, manufacturing, mining, for the most part, productivity growth has been a, a long and continuous process of automation, basically more and more technology being uh, added to the production process, often to automate labour input, uh, which has thereby kind of created a higher output for, for the labour input, uh, and that's generated a lot of benefits, you know, well-being benefits, um, lower prices and, and uh, rises in living standards to people. And you think about all those things that, uh, you know, we, we do these calculations on how long it took you to work in order to afford various things in 1900 versus today, you know, and all these, you know, the hours worked uh, to, to, to purchase all these things come well down. To the extent that services tend to be a bit more labour intensive, it's often been harder to kind of automate the labour input into a whole lot of in a whole lot of services. Uh, I think we're learning a bit about it now in the current climate, uh, in health, in education, and the like. You know, how do you how do you deliver good education content online? How do you deliver a meaningful health consultation online? That sort of thing. But that's that's 
one of the challenges, I think, in, in a services-based economy, how do you continue to drive uh, innovation and automation um, that, uh, you know, in, in those contexts, which, is, which have often proven to be a little bit stubborn to, to that um, to that approach, it just, just doesn't seem quite as linear as it's often been in, a, in, a, in an area like manufacturing. So you're suggesting that that's uh, potentially that next step change in um, in uh, industrial output, I guess, that the, the, the uh, equivalent to electricity. I think there's there's a sim- there's a similar discussion going on in the in in other jurisdictions that have a lot more manufacturing that um, of just how much of an impact that'll have on on employment. Um, that, do, do you have a sense for how that will impact Australia? Is Australia likely to see a? Is it, well, not likely, but is is it is it a big risk for Australia that this it'll it'll come with a, a significant onset of um, automation and unemployment as a result that doesn't get replaced by new jobs? Prior to the pandemic, and uh, uh, and, and assuming that this is not something that changes radically due to the pandemic. I have been sceptical about the claims of mass unemployment due to automation, in part because we just haven't been seeing it. Yep. Uh, so it's been inconsistent with the sluggish rate of growth in labour productivity. Uh, it just hasn't been consistent with a mass automation story. I mean, I think the things that I... The, 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 the analysis that I find most persuasive is that, uh, for the most part, it, it, it's... Uh, tasks within jobs that get automated rather than entire jobs themselves. Most most jobs are a, a bundle of quite automatable with less automatable things, you know, some, a bit of human judgment combined with something that you could automate. And it's that bit that can get automated that's often made our jobs easier. And so I think what does that imply in policy terms? Probably implies that for most people, the, the the task is really how to maintain your currency, how to maintain, uh, you know, through constant upskilling, um, kind of augmenting your human capital to make sure you're continuously adapting to the um, take advantage of the technologies that come along, rather than technology being a threat, an existential threat to your employability. Full stop. Now, Michael, we've all, we've asked all of our guests, and I think we're at sixteen or seventeen guests on this podcast now. We've asked them all one question to finish. Um, uh, and it, it's it's the big question. It's what's your favourite type of infrastructure and why? Gee, that's a good. That's a very good question. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I think I. Um, and just for context, the yeah. economists that we've had have always struggled the most to answer it. <laughs> everyone, everyone that's all the engineers have said they like a road or a bridge. The economists are always the the deepest. I guess the deepest thinkers that need to really uh, figure out what it is what it is I, that I they want, like the most. When I ask this question, I want an economist to say a well priced one. <laughs> it's very 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 good point. I mean, I, I, I don't know. Like I, I yeah, I, I like a good. Uh, a good freeway. There is something about you know when a um, this is totally kind of at odds. It should be a toll road. You know there should be um, appropriate pricing and uh, to, to ration use and that sort of thing. But there is something about um, you know new bits of road infrastructure when they first become available. There's something kind of uh, new and exciting about that. Yeah, well, the, the free bit before they put the toll on. Well, yeah, yeah, maybe that's maybe that's it. But uh, but even even allowing for. Uh, Paying for it, yeah. 
Yeah, I should really say a a road with a with a cordon charge and a yeah, <laughs> a gantry and a cordon charge, shouldn't I? Uh, well, um, I think we, we've come to a, a, a natural conclusion um, off the back of your appreciation for a well-priced infrastructure asset. So, um, Michael Brennan, thank you very much for joining us on Inside Infrastructure. It's been a great pleasure. Thanks. Thanks, Michael. Well, that's it for today. Thanks, as always, to PwC Australia for their continued sponsorship of Inside Infrastructure. Please make sure you subscribe on your favourite podcast platform and leave us a rating or a comment on LinkedIn. If you have any suggestions for guests, then please feel free to send those to either Ilya or myself. We've certainly appreciated the messages we've been receiving so far. This episode was recorded and edited by Adam Stevens from TAG, PwC Australia's internal media agency. Research was conducted by Linda Beershon, Brendan Pierce, and Michael Player.